Section 5 of State of the Union Addresses by United States Presidents, 1901-1908. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Paul Thomas. Section 5. Theodore Roosevelt. December 2, 1902. Part 1. To the Senate and House of Representatives, we still continue in a period of unbounded prosperity. This prosperity is not the creature of law, but undoubtedly the laws under which we work have been instrumental in creating the conditions which made it possible. And by unwise legislation, it would be easy enough to destroy it. There will undoubtedly be periods of depression. The wave will recede, but the tide will advance. This nation is seated on a continent flanked by two great oceans. It is composed of men, the descendants of pioneers, or in a sense, pioneers themselves, of men winnowed out from among the nations of the old world by the energy, boldness, and love of adventure found in their own eager hearts. Such a nation, so placed, will surely wrest success from fortune. As a people, we have played a large part in the world and we are bent upon making our future even larger than the past. In particular, the events of the last four years have definitely decided that, for woe or for weal, our place must be great among the nations. We may either fall greatly or succeed greatly, but we cannot avoid the endeavor from which either great failure or great success must come. Even if we would, we cannot play a small part. If we should try, all that would follow would be that we should play a large part ignobly and shamefully. But our people, the sons of the men of the Civil War, the sons of the men who had iron in their blood, rejoice in the present and face the future high of heart and resolute of will. Ours is not the creed of the weakling and the coward. Ours is the gospel of hope and of triumphant endeavor. We do not shrink from the struggle before us. There are many problems for us to face at the outset of the 20th century, grave problems abroad and still graver at home, but we know we can solve them, and solve them well, provided only that we bring to the solution the qualities of head and heart which were shown by the men who, in the days of Washington, rounded this government and, in the days of Lincoln, preserved it. No country has ever occupied a higher plane of material well-being than ours at the present moment. This well-being is due to no sudden or accidental causes, but to the play of the economic forces in this country for over a century, to our laws, our sustained and continuous policies, above all, to the high individual average of our citizenship. Great fortunes have been won by those who have taken the lead in this phenomenal industrial development, and most of these fortunes have been won not by doing evil, but as an incident to action which has benefited the community as a whole. Never before has material well-being been so widely diffused among our people. Great fortunes have been accumulated, and yet in the aggregate these fortunes are small indeed when compared to the wealth of the people as a whole. The plain people are better off than they have ever been before. The insurance companies, which are practically mutual benefit societies, especially helpful to men of moderate means, 
represent accumulations of capital which are among the largest in this country. There are more deposits in the savings banks, more owners of farms, more well-paid wage workers in this country now than ever before in our history. Of course, when the conditions have favored the growth of so much that was good, they have also favored somewhat the growth of what was evil. It is eminently necessary that we should endeavor to cut out this evil, but let us keep a due sense of proportion. Let us not, in fixing our gaze upon the lesser evil, forget the greater good. The evils are real, and some of them are menacing, but they are the outgrowth, not of misery or decadence, but of prosperity, of the progress of our gigantic industrial development. This industrial development must not be checked, but side by side with it should go such progressive regulation as will diminish the evils. We shall fail in our duty if we did not try to remedy the evils, but we shall succeed only if we proceed patiently, with practical common sense as well as resolution, separating the good from the bad and holding on to the former while endeavoring to get rid of the latter. In my message to the present Congress at its first session, I discussed at length the question of the regulation of those big corporations commonly doing in interstate business, often with some tendency to monopoly, which are popularly known as trusts. The experience of the past year has emphasized, in my opinion, the desirability of the steps I then proposed. A fundamental requisite of social efficiency is a high standard of individual energy and excellence, but this is in no wise inconsistent with power to act in combination for aims which cannot be so achieved by the individual acting alone. A fundamental base of civilization is the inviolability of property, but this is in no wise inconsistent with the right of society to regulate the exercise of the artificial powers which it confers upon the owners of property under the name of corporate franchises in such a way as to prevent the misuse of these powers. Corporations, and especially combinations of corporations, should be managed under public regulation. Experience has shown that under our system of government, the necessary supervision cannot be obtained by state action. It must, therefore, be achieved by national action. Our aim is not to do away with corporations, on the contrary. These big aggregations are an inevitable development of modern industrialism, and the effort to destroy them would be futile unless accomplished in ways that would work the utmost mischief to the entire body politic. We can do nothing of good in the way of regulating and supervising these corporations until we fix clearly in our minds that we are not attacking the corporations but endeavoring to do away with any evil in them. We are not hostile to them, we are merely determined that they shall be so handled as to subserve the public good. We draw the line against misconduct, not against wealth. The capitalist, who alone or in conjunction with his fellows, performs some great industrial feat by which he wins money, is a well-doer, not a wrongdoer, provided only he works in proper and legitimate lines. We wish to favor such a man when he does well, we wish to supervise and control his actions only to prevent him from doing ill. Publicity can do no harm to the honest corporation, and we need not be over-tender about sparing the dishonest corporation. 
in curbing and regulating the combinations of capital which are, or may become, injurious to the public, we must be careful not to stop the great enterprises which have legitimately reduced the cost of production, not to abandon the place which our country has won in the leadership of the international industrial world, not to strike down wealth with the result of closing factories and mines, of turning the wage worker idle in the streets and leaving the farmer without a market for what he grows. Insistence upon the impossible means delay in achieving the possible, exactly as, on the other hand, the stubborn defense alike of what is good and what is bad in the existing system, the resolute effort to obstruct any attempt at betterment, betrays blindness to the historic truth that wise evolution is the sure safeguard against revolution. No more important subject can come before the Congress than this of the regulation of interstate business. This country cannot afford to sit supine on the plea that under our peculiar system of government we are helpless in the presence of the new conditions, and unable to grapple with them or to cut out whatever of evil has arisen in connection with them. The power of the Congress to regulate interstate commerce is an absolute and unqualified grant, and without limitations other than those prescribed by the Constitution. The Congress has constitutional authority to make all laws necessary and proper for executing this power, and I am satisfied that this power has not been exhausted by any legislation now on the statute books. It is evident, therefore, that evils restrictive of commercial freedom and entailing restraint upon national commerce fall within the regulative power of the Congress, and that a wise and reasonable law would be a necessary and proper exercise of congressional authority to the end that such evils should be eradicated. I believe that monopolies, unjust discriminations, which prevent or cripple competition, fraudulent overcapitalization, and other evils in trust organizations and practices which injuriously affect interstate trade, can be prevented under the power of the Congress to regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the several states, through regulations and requirements operating directly upon such commerce, the instrumentalities thereof, and those engaged therein. I earnestly recommend this subject to the consideration of the Congress with a view to the passage of a law, reasonable in its provisions and effective in its operations, upon which the questions can be finally adjudicated that now raise doubts as to the necessity of constitutional amendment. If it prove impossible to accomplish the purposes above set forth by such a law, then, assuredly, we should not shrink from amending the Constitution so as to secure beyond peradventure the power sought. The Congress has not heretofore made any appropriation for the better enforcement of the antitrust law as it now stands. Very much has been done by the Department of Justice in securing the enforcement of this law, but much more could be done if the Congress would make a special appropriation for this purpose to be expended under the direction of the Attorney General. One proposition advocated has been the reduction of the tariff as a means of reaching the evils of the trusts which fall within the category I have described. Not merely would this be wholly ineffective, but the diversion of our efforts in such a direction would mean the abandonment of all intelligent attempt to do away with these evils. Many of the largest corporations, 
Many of those which should certainly be included in any proper scheme of regulation would not be affected in the slightest degree by a change in the tariff, save as such change interfered with the general prosperity of the country. The only relation of the tariff to big corporations as a whole is that the tariff makes manufacturers profitable, and the tariff remedy proposed would be, in effect, simply to make manufacturers unprofitable. To remove the tariff as a punitive measure directed against trusts would inevitably result in ruin to the weaker competitors who are struggling against them. Our aim should not be, by unwise tariff changes, to give foreign products the advantage over domestic products, but by proper regulation to give domestic competition a fair chance, and this end cannot be reached by any tariff changes which would affect unfavorably all domestic competitors, good and bad alike. The question of regulation of the trusts stands apart from the question of tariff revision. Stability of economic policy must always be the prime economic need of this country. This stability should not be fossilization. The country has acquiesced in the wisdom of the protective tariff principle. It is exceedingly undesirable that this system should be destroyed, or that there should be violent and radical changes therein. Our past experience shows that great prosperity in this country has always come under a protective tariff, and that the country cannot prosper under fitful tariff changes at short intervals. Moreover, if the tariff laws as a whole work well, and if business has prospered under them and is prospering, it is better to endure for a time slight inconveniences and inequalities in some schedules than to upset business by too quick and too radical changes. It is most earnestly to be wished that we could treat the tariff from the standpoint solely of our business needs. It is perhaps too much to hope that partisanship may be entirely excluded from consideration of the subject, but at least it can be made secondary to the business interests of the country, that is, to the interests of our people as a whole. Unquestionably, these business interests will best be served if together with fixity of principle as regards the tariff we combine a system which will permit us from time to time to make the necessary reapplication of the principle to the shifting national needs. We must take scrupulous care that the reapplication shall be made in such a way that will not amount to a dislocation of our system, the mere threat of which, not to speak of the performance, would produce paralysis in the business energies of the community. The first consideration in making these changes would, of course, be to preserve the principle which underlies our whole tariff system, that is, the principle of putting American business interests at least on a full equality with interests abroad, and of always allowing a sufficient rate of duty to more than cover the difference between the labor cost here and abroad. The well-being of the wage worker, like the well-being of the tiller of the soil, should be treated as an essential in shaping our whole economic policy. There must never be any change which will jeopardize the standard of comfort, the standard of wages, of the American wage worker. One way in which the readjustment sought can be reached is by reciprocity treaties. It is greatly to be desired that such treaties may be adopted. They can be used to widen our markets, and to give a greater field for the activities of our producers on the one hand, and on the other hand, to secure in practical shape the lowering of duties when they are no longer needed for protection among our own people, or when the minimum of damage done may be disregarded 
for the sake of the maximum of good accomplished. If it prove impossible to ratify the pending treaties, and if there seem to be no warrant for the endeavor to execute others, or to amend the pending treaties so that they can be ratified, then the same end, to secure reciprocity, should be met by direct legislation. Wherever the tariff conditions are such that a needed change cannot, with advantage, be made by the application of the reciprocity idea, then it can be made outright by lowering of duties on a given product. If possible, such change should be made only after the fullest consideration by practical experts, who should approach the subject from a business standpoint, having in view both the particular interests affected and the commercial well-being of the people as a whole. The machinery for providing such careful investigation can readily be supplied. The executive department has already at its disposal methods of collecting facts and figures, and if the Congress desires additional consideration to that which will be given the subject by its own committees, then a commission of business experts can be appointed whose duty it should be to recommend action by the Congress after a deliberate and scientific examination of the various schedules as they are affected by the changed and changing conditions. The unhurried and unbiased report of this commission would show what changes should be made in the various schedules and how far these changes could go without also changing the great prosperity which this country is now enjoying or upsetting its fixed economic policy. The cases in which the tariff can produce a monopoly are so few as to constitute an inconsiderable factor in the question. But of course, if in any case it can be found that a given rate of duty does promote a monopoly which works ill, no protectionist would object to such reduction of the duty as would equalize competition. In my judgment, the tariff on anthracite coal should be removed, and anthracite put actually where it now is nominally, on the free list. This would have no effect at all, save in crisis, but in crisis it might be of service to the people. Interest rates are a potent factor in business activity, and in order that these rates may be equalized to meet the varying needs of the season and of widely separated communities, and to prevent the recurrence of financial stringencies which injuriously affect legitimate business, it is necessary that there should be an element of elasticity in our monetary system. Banks are the natural servants of commerce, and upon them should be placed, as far as practicable, the burden of furnishing and maintaining a circulation adequate to supply the needs of our diversified industries and of our domestic and foreign commerce and the issue of this should be so regulated that a sufficient supply should be always available for the business interests of the country. It would be both unwise and unnecessary at this time to attempt to reconstruct our financial system, which has been the growth of a century. But some additional legislation is, I think, desirable. The mere outline of any plan sufficiently comprehensive to meet these requirements would transgress the appropriate limits of this communication. It is suggested, however, that all future legislation on the subject should be with the view of encouraging the use of such instrumentalities as will automatically supply every legitimate demand of productive industries and of commerce, not only in the amount, but in the character of circulation, and of making all kinds of money interchangeable 
and, at the will of the holder, convertible into the established gold standard. I again call your attention to the need of passing a proper immigration law, covering the points outlined in my message to you at the first session of the present Congress. Substantially, such a bill has already passed the House. How to secure fair treatment alike for labor and for capital, how to hold in check the unscrupulous man, whether employer or employee, without weakening individual initiative, without hampering and cramping the industrial development of the country, is a problem fraught with great difficulties, and one which it is of the highest importance to solve on lines of sanity and far-sighted common sense, as well as of devotion to the right. This is an era of federation and combination, exactly as businessmen find they must often work through corporations and as it is a constant tendency of these corporations to grow larger, so it is often necessary for laboring men to work in federations, and these have become important factors of modern industrial life. Both kinds of federation, capitalistic and labor, can do much good, and as a necessary corollary, they can both do evil. Opposition to each kind of organization should take the form of opposition to whatever is bad in the conduct of any given corporation or union, not of attacks upon corporations as such, nor upon unions as such, for some of the most far-reaching beneficent work for our people has been accomplished through both corporations and unions. Each must refrain from arbitrary or tyrannous interference with the rights of others. Organized capital and organized labor alike should remember that in the long run, the interest of each must be brought into harmony with the interest of the general public, and the conduct of each must conform to the fundamental rules of obedience to the law, of individual freedom, and of justice and fair dealing toward all. Each should remember that in addition to power, it must strive after the realization of healthy, lofty, and generous ideals. Every employer, every wage worker, must be guaranteed his liberty and his right to do as he likes with his property or his labor, so long as he does not infringe upon the rights of others. It is of the highest importance that employer and employee alike should endeavor to appreciate each the viewpoint of the other, and the sure disaster that will come upon both in the long run if either grows to take as habitual an attitude of sour hostility and distrust toward the other. Few people deserve better of this country than those representatives of both capital and labor, and there are many such who work continually to bring about a good understanding of this kind based upon wisdom and upon broad and kindly sympathy between employers and employed. Above all, we need to remember that any kind of class animosity in the political world is, if possible, even more wicked, even more destructive to national welfare, than sectional, race, or religious animosity. We can get good government only upon condition that we keep true to the principles upon which this nation was founded, and judge each man not as part of a class, but upon his individual merits. All that we have a right to ask of any man, rich or poor, whatever his creed, his occupation, his birthplace, or his residence, 
is that he shall act well and honorably by his neighbor and by his country. We are neither for the rich man as such nor for the poor man as such. We are for the upright man, rich or poor. So far as the constitutional powers of the national government touch these matters of general and vital moment to the nation, they should be exercised in conformity with the principles above set forth. It is earnestly hoped that a Secretary of Commerce may be created, with a seat in the Cabinet. The rapid multiplication of questions affecting labor and capital, the growth and complexity of the organizations through which both labor and capital now find expression, the steady tendency toward the employment of capital in huge corporations, and the wonderful strides of this country toward leadership in the international business world justify an urgent demand for the creation of such a position. Substantially all the leading commercial bodies in this country have united in requesting its creation. It is desirable that some such measure as that which has already passed the Senate be enacted into law. The creation of such a department would in itself be an advance toward dealing with and exercising supervision over the whole subject of the great corporations doing an interstate business, and with this end in view, the Congress should endow the Department with large powers, which could be increased as experience might show the need. I hope soon to submit to the Senate a reciprocity treaty with Cuba. On May 20 last, the United States kept its promise to the island by formally vacating Cuban soil and turning Cuba over to those whom her own people had chosen as their first officials of the new republic. Cuba lies at our doors, and whatever affects her, for good or for ill, affects us also. So much have our people felt this, that in the Platt Amendment, we definitely took the ground that Cuba must hereafter have closer political relations with us than with any other power. Thus, in a sense, Cuba has become a part of our international political system. This makes it necessary that, in return, she should be given some of the benefits of becoming part of our economic system. It is, from our own standpoint, a short-sighted and mischievous policy to fail to recognize this need. Moreover, it is unworthy of a mighty and generous nation, itself the greatest and most successful republic in history, to refuse to stretch out a helping hand to a young and weak sister republic just entering upon its career of independence. We should always fearlessly insist upon our rights in the face of the strong, and we should, with ungrudging hand, do our generous duty by the weak. I urge the adoption of reciprocity with Cuba not only because it is eminently for our own interests to control the Cuban market and by every means to foster our supremacy in the tropical lands and waters south of us, but also because we, of the giant Republic of the North, should make all our sister nations of the American continent feel that, whenever they will permit it, we desire to show ourselves disinterestedly and effectively their friend. A convention with Great Britain has been concluded, which will be, at once, laid before the Senate for ratification, providing for reciprocal trade arrangements between the United States and Newfoundland on substantially the lines of the convention formerly negotiated by the Secretary of State, Mr. Blaine. I believe reciprocal trade relations will be greatly to the advantage of both countries. As civilization grows, 
warfare becomes less and less the normal condition of foreign relations. The last century has seen a marked diminution of wars between civilized powers. Wars with uncivilized powers are largely mere matters of international police duty, essential for the welfare of the world. Wherever possible, arbitration or some similar method should be employed in lieu of war to settle difficulties between civilized nations. Although as yet the world has not progressed sufficiently to render it possible or necessarily desirable to invoke arbitration in every case. The formation of the International Tribunal, which sits at The Hague, is an event of good omen from which great consequences for the welfare of all mankind may flow. It is far better, where possible, to invoke such a permanent tribunal than to create special arbiters for a given purpose. It is a matter of sincere congratulation to our country that the United States and Mexico should have been the first to use the good offices of the Hague Court. This was done last summer with most satisfactory results in the case of a claim at issue between us and our sister republic. It is earnestly to be hoped that this first case will serve as a precedent for others, in which not only the United States but foreign nations may take advantage of the machinery already in existence at The Hague. I commend to the favorable consideration of the Congress the Hawaiian fire claims, which were the subject of careful investigation during the last session. The Congress has wisely provided that we shall build at once an Isthmian Canal, if possible, at Panama. The Attorney General reports that we can undoubtedly acquire good title from the French Panama Canal Company. Negotiations are now pending with Colombia to secure her assent to our building the canal. This canal will be one of the greatest engineering feats of the 20th century, a greater engineering feat that has yet been accomplished during the history of mankind. The work should be carried out as a continuing policy, without regard to change of administration, and it should be begun under circumstances which will make it a matter of pride for all administrations to continue the policy. The canal will be of great benefit to America and of importance to all the world. It will be of advantage to us industrially and also as improving our military position. It will be of advantage to the countries of tropical America. It is earnestly to be hoped that all of these countries will do as some of them have already done with signal success and will invite to their shores commerce and improve their material conditions by recognizing that stability and order are the prerequisites of successful development. No independent nation in America need have the slightest fear of aggression from the United States. It behooves each one to maintain order within its own borders and to discharge its just obligations to foreigners. When this is done, they can rest assured that, be they strong or weak, they have nothing to dread from outside interference. More and more, the increasing interdependence and complexity of international political and economic relations render it incumbent on all civilized and orderly powers to insist on the proper policing of the world. During the fall of 1901, a communication was addressed to the Secretary of State, asking whether permission would be granted by the President to a corporation to lay a cable from a point on the California coast to the Philippine Islands by way of Hawaii. 
a statement of conditions or terms upon which such corporation would undertake to lay and operate a cable was volunteered. Inasmuch as the Congress was shortly to convene, the Pacific Cable legislation had been the subject of consideration by the Congress for several years. It seemed to me wise to defer action upon the application until the Congress had first an opportunity to act. The Congress adjourned without taking any action, leaving the matter in exactly the same condition in which it stood when the Congress convened. Meanwhile, it appears that the Commercial Pacific Cable Company had promptly proceeded with preparations for laying its cable. It also made application to the President for access to and use of soundings taken by the USS Nero for the purpose of discovering a practicable route for the Trans-Pacific Cable, the company urging that with access to these soundings it could complete its cable much sooner than if it were required to take soundings upon its own account. Pending consideration of this subject, it appeared important and desirable to attach certain conditions to the permission to examine and use the soundings, if it should be granted. In consequence of this solicitation of the cable company, certain conditions were formulated upon which the President was willing to allow access to these soundings and to consent to the landing and laying of the cable, subject to any alterations or additions thereto imposed by the Congress. This was deemed proper, especially as it was clear that a cable connection of some kind with China, a foreign country, was a part of the company's plan. This course was, moreover, in accordance with a line of precedence, including President Grant's action in the case of the first French cable, explained to the Congress in his annual message of December 1875, and the instance occurring in 1879 of the second French cable from Brest to Saint-Pierre, with a branch to Cape Cod. These conditions prescribed, among other things, a maximum rate for commercial messages and that the company should construct a line from the Philippine Islands to China, there being at present, as is well known, a British line from Manila to Hong Kong. The representatives of the cable company kept these conditions long under consideration, continuing in the meantime to prepare for laying the cable. They have, however, at length acceded to them, and an all-American line between our Pacific coast and the Chinese Empire by way of Honolulu and the Philippine Islands is thus provided for, and is expected within a few months to be ready for business. Among the conditions is one reserving the power of the Congress to modify or repeal any or all of them. A copy of the conditions is herewith transmitted. Of Puerto Rico, it is only necessary to say that the prosperity of the island and the wisdom with which it has been governed have been such as to make it serve as an example of all that is best in insular administration. End of section 5. Recording by Paul Thomas.